Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pulp Today. I think this is actually number 43. And I only remember that because number 42, we did Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because, of course. And once again, I have a guest, and I have a great guest today, the amazing Hector Navarro. Hector, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Oh. Uh, I wish there was a better connection between the material we're talking about and the number 43. I don't <laughs> there, know if there was. <laughs> there is not. Oh, well. It's fine. Um, but uh, uh, my name is Hector and I'm a, a host based out of Los Angeles and I've done some stuff for some various uh, internet channels, uh, things like Nerdist and Geek and Sundry. Uh, I have um, been able to make kind of a, a living out of talking about the stuff that I love, which is usually comic books, uh, movies, um, and sometimes some other stuff. But those are, I think those are kind of my first two loves. And, uh, and, um, so I'm very, very honored to be, uh, to be oh. a guest on the show. This is fantastic. I realized when I was asking you to do this, I think the first comics press I ever did was your show. Awesome. That's great. I think I came on your show. <laughs> I can, there were two hosts, two co-hosts. Mm -hmm. I think Amy Dallin. That's right. Amy Dallin, Whitney Moore. It was yeah. the poll on yes. uh, geek and sundry. Yep. I yeah. think that was it. That was when I was a baby comics writer. I think I had written maybe one series. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think you asked me who my favorite Ninja Turtle was, and that was before I had been working with Kevin Eastman. So that was oh, very cool. Funny. Do you remember uh, what your answer was? I don't remember what you yes, said. Yes, I okay. answered Michelangelo. Okay, very nice. Has it has that answer changed since working with Eastman? It actually has not. It okay. actually has not. I had a little bit of an imposter syndrome after it came out of my mouth because I was like, do I really know yeah. all four of them? <laughs> do I have their personalities then? But two things, well, three things. One, he is a great character. Two, mm -hmm. it's my father's name, Michelangelo Avaloni. I'm on. actually, my name is a classical art joke. I'm Michelangelo's David. <laughs> and, That's awesome. And three, uh, I'm friends with Robbie Rist. Yeah, who is great. Michelangelo in the first movie. Absolutely. So it's a it's a combination of things, but he is a fun character. Are you reading yeah. and enjoying uh, the Last Ronin? I have heard nothing but good things about the so Last good. Ronin, and what I have is when the new IDW series started coming out. I think in I want to say 2011, mm -hmm. which was like right when the Ninja Turtles property was bought by Nickelodeon slash Viacom or whatever. But then like IDW was like, we're doing new comics. It's a new continuity. Mm -hmm. We're bringing on Kevin Eastman as like, you know, to help us and to shepherd it and to kind of, you know, be the godfather of the, he's the, he's the turtle papa. Right. And um, I was reading a lot of it when it was coming out and I really did love it. Yeah, Tom and did a good job. It really fantastic stuff. Yeah. And and I remember I got to a, a, a story arc that was like the secret history of the Foot Clan. And it kind of blew my mind uh, yeah. as, a, as, as a, a fan of the original Ninja Turtles movie with Robbie Rist and, and all of those amazing um, performers in that film. I mean, I don't know if you could see, look at this a little setup of the of all of the Ninja Turtle movie figures that they've been coming out with the past nice. couple of years. And nice. There's the turtles and Casey Jones and Shredder and everything, and I ordered nice. April O'Neil. Very excited, but <laughs> um, there was a there was a lot of great changes to the mythos in that comic series that I was very excited by. But at one mm. point, this this happens a lot of the time with my comic reading. David is I'll as I'll get to a point and I'll be like, I love this. I'm gonna 
like shelf it. I'm going to put it aside for a second and I will someday like read the whole thing in one go. Right. They haven't stopped. <laughs> so I'm very <laughs> right. behind, but I am planning to, I have like some of their early, like sort of larger collections of, 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 you know, collecting series and stuff, but I am planning to at some point sit down and like get through everything and, and yeah. catch up to that point right now. That I'm doing that stuff. with, yeah, it's really fantastic. And I'm kind of doing that with some of my other, um, favorite series i'm kind of rereading invincible with my two friends that i do a youtube mm -hmm. show with because one of them has never read it and we decided to try to link up with the with the hype of the tv series sure. and so we're we're kind of focusing on that but i would not be surprised if they wanted to when we're done with that like pivot to ninja turtles because i have heard nothing but good things about pretty it's much really every great. major thing in that series yeah with, it's sort of the dark turtle returns it's, yeah uh, <laughs> it's kevin is a huge Frank Miller fan, obviously. Yes. And this, yes. Th the story was hatched, for want of a better word, <laughs> when he, you know, sort of at the height of his Frank Miller fandom. Mm -hmm. So it's it's very much uh, that thing of like, let's tell the last story. I love it. That you can tell about the Ninja Turtles, and it's really uh, Kevin's work on his great Ben Bishop, who does the uh, the Drawing Blood comic that I do with Kevin, mm -hmm. um, is uh, one of the artists on it, and it's just it's been. It's funny. I don't know the name of the main artist because when I talk to Kevin, he refers to them as the twins. It's two guys. And I, so I actually don't know that I've heard their names out loud. But the twins are said, great. Yeah, but the twins, the twins are great. Are, the twins are great. I love what the twins are doing. So, uh, Very but exciting. John Carter of Mars. Yeah. Also has some green characters in it. There's, there, yeah, <laughs> some very green characters in it. Cars Tark is Jeddak of Thark, which just That's right. rolls off the tongue like very few things in science fiction. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, so Star Wars comes out in 1977. I'm 12 mm -hmm. and I'm a voracious reader. Mm -hmm. And one of the better things I think that art like Star Wars can do for you is yes, it rips off a million things. You then get to discover those things. Yes, so yes. It, Star Wars made me read Dune and Foundation for their galactic empires and mm -hmm. their spice and their mm -hmm. desert yeah. planets. Uh, and John Carter is very, you know, the jet axe, you mm -hmm. know, and the bantha, I think there's a bantha in there. Yeah. Bantha in there. Um, all of it was supposed to, there's a phrase in William Burroughs, uh, mythic resonance. And I'm a big believer in mythic resonance and it's not ripping off when they talk about spice in star Wars. It's yeah. mythic resonance. It's, you know, <laughs> blasters, you know, I think the first time Blasters is in a movie is in Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. They refer to the ray guns as blasters, blasters. and they refer to hyperspace in Forbidden wow. Planet. Wow. You know, in 1956, there's someone, a ship coming out of, a starship coming out of hyperspace. Yeah. So all of those tropes that have been in science fiction literature forever, uh, I read, I, I did an episode a few, uh, a couple of months ago about Galactic Patrol by E.E. Mm. E. Doc Smith, the Lensman series. That's another you know that's another thing that star wars kind of reaches into I'll, yeah i will say my favorite piece of star wars trivia and i'm proud of the fact that other, i'm sure other people have noticed it but i'm the one that added it to imdb as soon as i noticed it <laughs> the plot is lifted somewhat from kurosawa's hidden fortress mm -hmm. you ever notice that the guy that darth vader strangles on the death star is literally in the middle of saying the phrase hidden fortress Wow, that's right. That is the closest to George Lucas being witty <laughs> I can ever find. 
It's almost like Darth Vader is going, bah, 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 don't say Hidden Fortress in this I find movie. your lack of faith disturbing. Yeah. yeah. Like- <laughs> but the guy's like, it hasn't given you the clairvoyance enough to conjure up the rebel, the, those data tapes or find the rebels hidden. It's like, we're not saying Hidden Fortress in, in, in this movie, my dude. That's like, great. We're not, we're not doing that. But anyway, John yeah. Carter's from 1912. Originally, yeah. Yeah. And I love, this is something I discovered fairly recently. Mm-hmm. That genre, you know, space opera, mm-hmm. particularly the John Carter type thing, I have heard referred to as planetary romance. I have also heard that phrase. Yes. I love that. It's great. <laughs> I love the idea because it's swords and flying machines. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to remember if I call, I did a, I did a John Carter uh, riff in the Betty Page comics. Great. And I think I called the issue planetary romance. I mean, it's perfect. And it's and, and what I love about that descriptor too is that there is a lot of genres that uh that Edgar Rice Burroughs was I think kind of messing with and just kind of playing around with. But I like that that fans of this series of books and these stories have have kind of centered on like it's a romance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that the, that, a, that a huge takeaway, if not the takeaway, should be the the story behind like this guy from Earth. Uh, who we don't know too much about, but it's kind of mysterious and everything. And in and, and, and in these books, he's definitely too perfect and too skilled and too everything. Can still um, fall in love with a beautiful princess from another world, and that they really truly love each other. And it's very romantic and how sweet they are with each other. And he's he's constantly using that southern charm of like, I meant no disrespect. I yeah. didn't know your customs, so you'll have right. to forgive this old Virginia cavalryman yeah. as I'm trying to learn your, you know. <laughs> I yeah. love that stuff. I think that I think that's um that's that is uh the most one of the most important things to kind of to lock into when you're when you're mm-hmm. experiencing these old stories. I think and because, Tarz, and and Tarzan too, like how yeah. how he gave these stories heart was by making them essential. Tarzan is a love story. The ending of yes. that is devastating. Mm-hmm. You know, it's Casablanca. He gives up the woman he loves so that you know she can be happier than she would be with him. Right, and, uh, right, and that's terrific stuff. And yeah, John Carter's motivation in the you know, to me, the disappointment with the whole series is that it's not about him. We give up on John Carter after book three. True, and uh, you know, and I don't. His son is not interesting and different enough from him that I don't know why we. And just look, you, you, you have you have a very clever uh, f- uh, familial lineage name, but John Carter's son that he had with Deja Thoris is named. Carthoris, Carthoris, like it's a terrible clunky name. It's really bad. (laughs) They should have named their kid something else. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really bad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we should feel glad that he didn't name the kid, you know, Robert E. Lee Thoris or whatever, you know, like- (laughs) Seriously, seriously. There could be be worse names. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's funny. I decided more as a, not as commentary on John Carter, but as- uh, just as an interesting twist in my Betty page story, she realizes she slowly comes to realize that the John Carter guy is actually the bad guy. And the, mm-hmm. the creepy looking aliens are the good guys. And it was really more a commentary on, I kind of hated in convert in, in all art really where the hero is the hero just cause he's good looking and the yep. bad guys are ugly. Yep. I love, uh, I love, love, love Jack Kirby, but I've always kind of hated, I, it's not the Eternals. I think it's in. Is it the New Gods? Not the 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 DC version of the Eternals. The uh, Forever People. 
No, not one of the fourth world ones. The Celestials. I'm trying to remember what the comic was called. Uh-huh. But the good guys were like the Celestials who were all gorgeous and the bad guys were the Deviants who were all yes. gross. That is, like, that is the Eternals, I think. That is the Eternals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, is the that Deviants, in the Eternals? The Deviants are all demonic looking and everything. Yeah. And, the, and the good the good characters look like Greek gods. You know, yeah, they're very and it's just handsome, like, chiseled people. A guy that hated Nazis should know better than to make the main thing that distinguishes yeah. the good guys and the bad guys how pretty their hair is like that's that's not a yeah that's a rare case of jack sort of not getting it but i wanted to do a thing about uh that and of course by making him the bad guy i leaned into the confederate soldier part absolutely Uh, i had you not i had my john carter character say that he was uh a veteran of uh nathan bedford forest's cavalry (laughs) and nathan bedford forest for those who don't know goes on to found the ku klux klan so at lines some point, up. Betty lines Page, up. and Betty Page is from Tennessee, but she's like, you have a bad, you have bad taste in, <laughs> in leadership. Dude. Absolutely. I, um, I think, uh, I think a really interesting thing is, I think it was like a few years ago, I saw a, 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 a project and I can't remember if it was something that was, I think it was being kickstarted, but like some people got together and they were doing their riff on John Carter of Mars. It may have even been a direct remake, but the difference was, is they made John Carter a black soldier. Mm-hmm. from the civil war and i'm like there's a whole bunch of storytelling possibilities you could tell with that i also think that um it, it you know i understand the way that disney adapted the movie i really truly love the movie i love aspects of, of the film big yeah. fan of the movie i think andrew stanton made a great pg-13 you know it was not a salacious everybody's naked on mars this is rated r for adults it was a pg-13 yeah, no. star wars uh you know yeah. living in that world and I wonder if if the movie should have uh, tried a better attempt at at incorporating more diversity while they were on Mars, because even though all the people were like the Red Martians and there was some variation of skin tone, it was mostly kind of like American or British white actors that had the sort of henna tattoo look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and in the in the John Carter mythos, there's other groups of people. There are Black Martians that have you know an interesting and sometimes very stereotypical and frustrating like depiction, but I'm like, I wonder if you guys could have tried to do something to change it, but still kind of keep the the, the yeah. spirit of it or lean more into what John Carter is a man, what he believes in at the beginning of the story, what his experience is on Mars, because it's so, it's Dances with Wolves, it's Avatar, it's so yeah. cliched that it's like he meets a tribe of aliens. And then when he comes back to earth, he truly understands Racism is bad because humans are all humans. It's like, well, maybe do some of that. And the thing about heroic fiction, I used to say this about Star Trek VI. One of the great things about Star Trek VI is because you have beloved characters, Mm -hmm. you can have them be racists for half the movie. Yes. And it let Captain Kirk discovering that he's a racist and regretting it. I love it. I'm as bad as these people that wanted to fuck up the peace treaty. I yeah. hated Klingons just as much as they yeah. did. I yeah. wanted them to die. I was literally on board with genocide for the Klingon people. Yep. And I should know better. I'm a big boy. I've been living with dealing with aliens my whole life, but these <laughs> killed my son. And I like, you sure. know, they gave him a rationale. But if you made that movie with any other set of characters, I think the audience mm-hmm. would reject Admiral Kirk in scene one when he says, let them die absolutely Don't trust them you know absolutely but spock but, having the old yeah. friend who's like no jim you you're better you're a better man i know you're better than this i know mm-hmm. you will come around 
and realize I'm doing the right. This is an opportunity to make peace between our peoples and you're not seeing it because you're blinded by your own bigotry. Yeah, he absolutely could have had John Carter look at his, you know, red skinned cavalry behind him and go, what the hell was I fighting for in 1864? Yep. Absolutely. What was Absolutely. I? What was I up? What was I trying to do? Mm -hmm. And it was a missed opportunity to do that. Yeah, um, it, it, and and to not be super preachy about it or anything, but just to have that, you know, because I, I think a really interesting part of the story that's at the end of this first novel that Burroughs wrote, where he goes back to Earth for, and he's like stuck for ten years, and he, you right. know, and and none of that story is really talked about, is really covered, and in the Disney adaptation, there's a great little twist sort of at the end, but the character does come back and. And they've changed his backstory and changed the character. Mm -hmm. He's still going on this space adventure and the heart of the story is still there. This kind of Superman, you know, style character. But I think that, uh, I think that, I think that audiences are savvy enough that they would have accepted a little something, something oh, yeah. in 2012 well, when that movie came out, you know, something. And also the, if you had changed him, you know, I was just talking about this on another podcast the amount of dedicated John Carter fans in the world would not fill a baseball stadium. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> the idea that you're going to make some giant misstep by, no. by uh, the story I told in the last podcast, and I'll tell it again, is I worked a little bit on the Red Sonia development for the new mm -hmm. movie that's coming out. Mm -hmm. Cool. And the, the discussion would come up about Red Sonia's fans and not disappointing Red Sonia's fans. And I went on Comicron, Joey Soloway is writing and directing the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, he, they're an old friend of mine and uh, I love them dearly. And I, I showed them the Comicron sales figures for the latest issue of Red Sonia at Dynamize. Like, <laughs> so Red yeah. Sonia fans yeah. are 18,000 people. Correct. <laughs> Unless it's a first issue, in which case it's twenty-seven thousand people. But eighteen thousand yeah. people is is the smallest theater at a multiplex in the middle of nowhere on the second weekend. Yeah, <laughs> like, like if you're worried about Absolutely. offending eight, and yes, people can be loud on Twitter. Sure, whatever. But the number of people, you know, and they they have picked a mixed race. Yeah you know girl Absolutely. to play the to play the part and i think she's great casting i think she's going to be terrific yep but uh of course people were outraged that she wasn't some pale german thing and it's like mm -hmm. who cares look i i watched uh uh not when i was too young i think i was at a pretty good age when i first encountered the first arnold conan movie and uh i really it, it was so weird and so bizarre and i hadn't gotten into conan yet and I have since become a huge, huge fan. And I'm kind of going back and, and, and uh, rereading mm -hmm. all of the classic Conan comics, as well as like the Dark Horse stuff from 20 years ago, as well as like the new Marvel stuff that they're doing now. But I, I, in that research, I've learned that like diehard Conan fans, when that first Arnold movie came out, they absolutely had issues with it. And there's also real valid criticisms about how those two Arnold movies handle the Conan material and you know what's kind of left out from it and what's interesting about the material and the robert e howard writing but i think at the end of the day those those movies that first movie especially i think did more for bringing people into the conan world it's like you said at the beginning it's like once you love a thing then you can discover where that thing came from yep. you know and that's what this whole thing is about and i feel like 
I, I experienced the same thing being a, a lifelong, since I was a kid, Spider-Man fan. It's a very popular character. I don't know if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. And so I was in high school when the first Spider-Man movie was released in 2002. I was in high school. This was uh, um, the first theatrically. I know there was like a, a live action TV Spider-Man that was yep. before my time a little bit. And there were various cartoons. And in that movie, man, I'll tell you a real quick story, too, that's, that, that I think sums up a lot of issues with fandom. The movie comes out and it's in May. And I went to school the following Monday after opening weekend and two girls my age behind me in a math class were talking about characters, Peter Parker and Mary Jane. And I was like, the world yeah, has right. changed like that. Like they're not, it's not Spider-Man. You know, they're saying, they're, they're saying like the secret identities of these characters that the, the, as characters, they're invested in them. And then that summer I was born and raised in San Diego. So I had been going to San Diego comic-con and I was very spoiled and, and, you know, didn't even know as a kid, it was the biggest of right. the conventions, but went to San Diego comic-con that summer is 2002. And there was a guy walking around in a Spider-Man outfit, interviewing people with a camera because he was part of a, project where they were trying to trying to raise money to remake or reshoot their own spider-man film and this guy was i'm serious i mean this is like i mean it's still kind of early days of the internet but it's like right. the most common thing now is this, this this entitlement and this guy cornered me because i i think i was also dressed up in the spider-man wrestling outfit from the first right. movie that spray painted you know thing my grandma helped me make the costume it was a, it was a great 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 costume so i he cornered me and he goes, this kid's dressed as Spider-Man. I was, you know, a small kid. And he's like, I'm going to talk to him and maybe try to get him because he was like in his 20s or something. Right. <clears throat> and he was like, so you're a Spider-Man fan. Aren't you upset that they like change certain details about the Spider-Man live action movie? And I went, no, because now I can share this with millions of people around the world. Yep. It's fine that he doesn't have mechanical web shooters. It's OK. Or it's 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 a shortcut. Yes, it's all shorthand. But like now people know what this is and then they can they can enjoy it. Right. And he was like. Okay. Like he couldn't get me. He goes, all right, I picked up, picked on the wrong kid. Okay, great. Okay, great. So it's, um, and that's and the thing a, is, it's yeah. like, and guess what? And now we have movies where they're mechanical web shooters again, because nobody gives a shit. <laughs> Absolutely. Nobody gives a shit. Exactly. Yeah. No, that exactly. I'll tell you, I, it's so off topic, but I have to tell you the story around the time before that movie was being made. Mm-hmm. I used to occasionally do extra work and I was doing extra work on this movie, playing a cop. Mm-hmm. One of my fellow cops was this great stunt man named Michael Papa John. And Papa John takes me aside at one point. He's like, so I was in the last, he's from uh, West Virginia, I think. He's like, so I was in the last Sam Raimi movie and uh, the, for the love of the game. And mm-hmm. I wrote him a letter saying, I love being in love for the love of the game. And uh, can I, you know, I'll do anything in Spider-Man. I'll hold a, 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 a spear. I'll do, you know, whatever small part you want to give me. And he said, so I went in and did an audition and you're the first person I'm telling. I play a guy, I guess I kill his uncle or something like that. And he was That's so right. unaware of the mythology. <laughs> he had no idea. He Papa literally John. thought he had been cast as thug number t- five. Yeah, he didn't know he was the burglar. The I said, burglar. dude, you're the destruction of Krypton. Like yeah. you don't realize <laughs> you're the guy killing Martha Kent and, or mm-hmm. you know, Killing Martha and uh, and Thomas Wayne. He's like, mm-hmm. really? Is it an important part? I said, oh my god, dude, it's so central to the mythology. You have no idea. Um, yeah, and they brought him back for Spider Man Three because they're like, you're friends with Sandman now, so we need you to come back yeah. and. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Papa John. Wow. What I love about Papa John is a very good actor, but he's also a very good stunt man. 
And what mm -hmm. I love about him is 99% of the time when he's in a scene, no matter what he's playing, I'm like, that accountant is about to be thrown out a window. <laughs> sure enough, he got thrown because out of a window. Because he's like, that, you know, that ER doctor is about to be run over by a mm -hmm. truck because it's Papa mm -hmm. John, <laughs> you know, or he's going to throw a punch or someone's going to mm -hmm. shoot him and he's going to go flying over a, over a desk or something like that. Yeah, listen, if I could say something about your actor friend, I still remember in that performance. It's very Shatner-esque, but in one scene, he he's he's yelling at Spider-Man crawling on the walls, and he does this like like jaw thing with his mouth, and it's very Shatner, like you know, from Wrath of Khan, where he's mm -hmm. like Hughes was the most human. Like it's this great, right. like what are you doing? But this great thing. So. The thing about, and I said this to him at the time. What's what's great casting about Papa John? is he can play a scary dude mm -hmm. but there's an but he's a very human warm person and i think mm -hmm. you get that and i think peter being responsible for his death or his being you know be, yep. like it may if the guy was just a complete nightmare yeah not just some guy who's robbing something because he's poor which is the sense you get when papa john is playing it yeah like there's a humanity to it that makes the whole the whole circumstance more fraught than it would be if that was Michael Rooker. You know Absolutely. what I mean? If Absolutely. it was just like, you know, Clancy Brown. And yeah. both of those guys also have great heart. But they're but usually playing kind of, real there's bastards. A sweetness yeah. to, there's a sweetness to Papa John that you mm -hmm. can't iron out of him. And it mm -hmm. makes that character a thousand times more tragic. So it's very... He, he takes that mask guy. off. And yeah, and Toby Maguire has the flashbacks. And one of them is like... Uh, like hold that door and then the other one is is Papa John is the door closing he's going thanks and it's a real genuine thanks as the elevator right. door closes and he didn't capture him like and right. you're like oh what a sweet guy he said thanks you know and then he killed Uncle Ben <laughs> and he shot Uncle Ben in the car in, oh. in the in the car from the Evil Dead movies that's mm -hmm. you know that's mm -hmm. what we love about Sam Raimi so fun what would you like to read from the princess a princess of Mars I just reread it because mm -hmm. I'm on a show called Nerdist Book Club and right. we do episodes once a month and, and I just reread it and I, and I think my favorite section of the entire book that I think actually has some, some pretty good writing is, uh, is this chapter that I'm going to read. This is chapter 24 and I'll give you a little context beforehand. John Carter, there you go. Oh, very nice, very nice. Look at that. I have this. Old I have 70s this paperback. Beautiful, beautiful paperback. I've got a Disney edition that's got the first three. Oh, this is 63. 63 Valentine books nice. 1963 January wow. 1st printing 1963 but the book itself is copyright 1912 1912 from all story magazine that's correct as it, it was that's where it was first serialized and so many of the chapters read like these great little yeah. tune in next week to find out what oh, happens totally. Totally. <laughs> which is great I, i'm sorry you were saying um, uh, the context is John Carter is a guy who fought for the South in the uh, Civil War of the United States. Um, has a, 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 a gold digging friend, Powell, that they're that they like found a cave of gold and they're going to try to figure out. Powell gets killed by Native Americans. They're not painted too, uh, too nice in these first few chapters. And, um, and then he hides in a cave, somehow mysteriously clones his own body. There's a naked new clone that John Carter is inhabiting. He's looking down at his clothed self and going, I don't know how this happened. He looks up at Mars in the night sky of the Arizona desert and just like whisks to Mars. Right. It's really just magical and weird and yeah. fun. He learns how to jump good like Superman because he's got super strength. He meets a bunch of different characters of princess. And now he's back looking for 
a way to get to, um, I think he's trying to get back to, to helium because he wants to tell the people of helium uh, on the planet Barsoom, Mars, that he's found the missing princess and she's been held captive and he's trying to go and rally their forces. But on the way, he's riding the desert in this cool little air flyer. He sees what he's about to see and, uh, and, and, and I'll take it from here. And I'm going to attempt to do a little bit of an impression of actor Taylor Kitsch, who played him in the 2012 Disney movie, nice. as well as Willem Dafoe, who plays Tars Tarkas, I'm, favorite, I can't my wait. favorite character in the story. Um, this was like the, le- like the least offensive section in them. So this is why I'm going with this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. Chapter 24, Tars Tarkas finds a friend. <clears throat> About noon, I pass low over a great dead city of ancient Mars. And as I skimmed out across the plain beyond, I came full upon several thousand green warriors engaged in a terrific battle. Scarcely had I seen them than a volley of shots was directed at me, and with the almost unfailing accuracy of their aim, my little craft was instantly a ruined wreck, sinking erratically to the ground. I fell almost directly in the center of the fierce combat, among warriors who had not seen my approach so busily were they engaged in life and death struggles. The men were fighting on foot with long swords, while an occasional shot from a sharpshooter on the outskirts of the conflict would bring down a warrior who might for an instant separate himself from the entangled mass. As my machine sank among them, I realized that it was fight or die, with good chances of dying in any event, and so I struck the ground with drawn longsword ready to defend myself as I could. I fell beside a huge monster who was engaged with three antagonists, and as I glanced at his fierce face, Filled with the light of battle, I recognized Tars Tarkas, the Thark. He did not see me, as I was a trifle behind him. And just then, the three warriors opposing him, and whom I recognized as war hoons, charged simultaneously. The mighty fellow made quick work of one of them, but in stepping back for another thrust, he fell over a dead body behind him, and was down and at the mercy of his foes in an instant. Quick as lightning, they were upon him, and Tars Tarkas would have been gathered to his fathers in short order, had I not sprung before his prostate form and engaged his adversaries. I had accounted for one of them when the mighty Thark regained his feet and quickly settled the other. He gave me one look and a slight smile touched his grim lip as touching my shoulder, he said, I would scarcely recognize you, John Carter, but there is no other mortal upon Barsoom who would have done what you have for me. I think I have learned that there is such a thing as friendship, my friend. He said no more, nor was there opportunity, for the war hoons were closing in about us, and together we fought shoulder to shoulder during all that long, hot afternoon until the tide of battle turned and the remnant of the fierce war hoon horde fell back upon their throats and fled into the gathering darkness. Ten thousand men had been engaged in that titanic struggle, and upon the field of battle lay three thousand dead. Neither side asked or gave quarter, nor did they attempt to take prisoners. On our return to the city after the battle, we had gone directly to Tars Tarkas's quarters, where I was left alone, while the chieftain attended the customary council, which immediately follows an engagement. As I sat awaiting the return of the green warrior, I heard something move in an adjoining apartment, and as I glanced up there, rushed suddenly upon me a huge and hideous creature, which bore me backward upon the pile of silks and furs upon which I had been reclining. It was Wula, faithful, loving Wula. He had found his way back to Thark and, as Tars Tarkas later told me, had gone immediately to my former quarters where he had taken up his pathetic and seemingly hopeless watch for my return. Tal Hadjus knows that you are here, John Carter, 
said Tars Tarkas on his return from the Jeddak's quarters. Sarkoja saw and recognized you as we were returning. Talhajus has ordered me to bring you before him tonight. I have ten thoats, John Carter. You may take your choice from among them, and I will accompany you to the nearest waterway that leads to Helium. Tars Tarkas may be a cruel green warrior, but he can be a friend as well. Come, we must start. And when you return, Tars Tarkas, I asked. The wild callots, possibly, or worse, he replied. Unless I should chance to have the opportunity I have so long waited of battling with Talhajus. We will stay, Tars Tarkas, and see Talhajus tonight. You shall not sacrifice yourself, and it may be that tonight you can have the chance you wait. He objected strenuously, saying that Talhajus often flew into wild fits of passion at the mere thought of the blow I had dealt him, and that if ever he laid his hands upon me, I would be subjected to the most horrible tortures. While we were eating, I repeated to Tars Tarkas the story which Sola had told me that night upon the sea bottom during the march to Thark. He said but little, but the great muscles of his face worked in passion and in agony at recollection of the horrors which had been heaped upon the only thing he had ever loved in all his cold, cruel, terrible existence. He no longer demurred when I suggested that we go before Talhajus, only saying that he would like to speak to Sarkoja first. At this request, I accompanied him to her quarters, and the look of venomous hatred she cast upon me was almost adequate recompense for any future misfortunes this accidental return to Thark might bring me. Sarkoja, said Tars Tarkas, forty years ago you were instrumental in bringing about the torture and death of a woman named Gozava. I have just discovered that the warrior who loved that woman has learned of your part in the transaction. He may not kill you, Sarkoja. It is not our custom, but there is nothing to prevent him tying one end of a strap about your neck and the other end to a wild thoat, merely to test your fitness to survive and help perpetuate our race. Having heard that he would do this on the morrow, I thought it only right to warn you, for I am just a man. The river Is is but a short pilgrimage, Sarkoja. Come, John Carter. The next morning, Sarkoja was gone nor was she ever seen after the end of that <laughs> section. Uh, <laughs> that was a very good Willem Dafoe. Thank you. It, it, uh, it, I think it made up a little bit for my Keanu Reeves, John Carter, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. The, you know, the, I always think about Tars Tarkas. I think he's the first of a particular archetype. I'm, I'm very hard pressed to find a previous version of Tars Tarkas, mm -hmm. but everything from Chewbacca mm -hmm. to Worf, mm -hmm. Worf is absolutely like personality wise, Worf reminds me so much of Tars Tarkas. In the Micronauts comics, a Croyer was so built on the bones of Tars Tarkas. Yep. Yep. The, even Spock has just a touch of Tars Tarkas yes. in him. The alien yes. who's the best friend of the of who, the, the white guy leading man. Yeah. Again, who teaches him tolerance and who teaches him that maybe yes. the Apaches aren't all horrible, murderous savages. And, and, and the so. Tars Tarkas or the Spock or the Wharf, those characters are taught human emotion, human love, you know, the, yeah. the, the sort of reader perspective of like, oh, Vulcans are so this. And then Captain Kirk is able to convince Spock over over time that uh, right. that he can embrace his half human side and the same goes for Worf and his human adoptive parents and mm -hmm. it's 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 classic it's yeah, it's yeah. great. There's something this is again such deep nerdity but I know you're the right audience for it. 
there is something so subtle. A lot of people tend to disregard the first Star Trek movie, mm -hmm. but Nimoy never disregarded it in his performances of Spock. Mm. If you go back to old Star Trek, like there's a line somewhere about why would I say thank you when you just do your duty? Mm -hmm. In Star Trek II, when he's in command of the Enterprise, he says thank you to a human officer for something. And I'm like, the V'ger experience changed him and he is now at peace. I love it. Like the fact that he had the, like whatever you think about that first movie. Yeah. In the development of Spock, it's the end of Spock's arc. Yeah. In that sense of Spock as a guy who doesn't know who he is and hasn't, hasn't integrated the parts of him. The way he plays Spock in two through six and even yeah. in the later appearances, yeah. it's the integrated Spock, the Spock who doesn't Absolutely. hate being human, the Spock who is now a whole person. And all yeah. of that comes from Star Trek, the motion picture, which people really don't want to like think about or acknowledge. But it's a very interesting, to me at least, it's a very interesting. It's a really good point. I mean, his story, his story arc was done, so he had to die in part two. Like yeah. he died in the next one. So yeah, <laughs> it's really, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Which is a thing you do when, now I don't know if you remember these, but I was a huge fan of the Marvel. Do you have the, is, I, there, a, is there a trade now? I've got the omnibus. There's not a trade. Oh. This was uh, I should grab it. Hang on one second. I'm going to yeah. grab it because this is a, it's, a, it's definitely worth talking about. I think, hang on one second. Yeah. Let me get this here. All right. I've also got, I've also got this uh, collection of John Carter comics from like the fifties. Oh wow! This is a Weird Worlds. It's called, huh. and this is um, and it's got an introduction by Marv Wolfman. Nice. Uh, and and uh, he, I think he wrote on this very early. Let me check to see well, when he this wrote stuff on the was... Marvel. Yeah. Oh yeah he, yeah yeah. He was the writer. That's so funny. Yeah, this I is. I have this... to talk to Marv about that the next time I run into oh, him at something. So that's... this was this was originally published in DC. This mm. is a uh, this is in the back of Tarzan issues two hundred seven to two hundred nine. Sure. And and weird weird worlds one through seven. So this was 1972-1973 DC Comics. Huh. So it's a very it's a very interesting and Marv talked about how he was always trying to work on this and and when when things switched over to Marvel. He didn't think he would be able to work on it anymore, but then he did. Yeah. Um, which is great. But this a, is I thought he did a great wow. I thought he did a great job. That's gotta be all of them, right? Because they're only about yeah. 30 or so. Yeah, that's the whole kit and caboodle. Oh, good. The I entire can get thing. rid of some of my some my whole thing is getting rid of floppies and having yeah. trade paperbacks I can read, you know, it, I, omnibus. I, 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 I will say this, it's very out of print and it was a little pricey for me to track down, but mm -hmm. I, I am such a such a fan of holding the thing that so many people so many creatives cite as a huge source of influence even andrew stanton who wrote and directed the movie the john carter movie it's he said a, this was his first exposure and was the marvel funny, books i first bought this was one where i think post star wars i probably bought like john carter number 14 or something like that and then mm -hmm. it became one of those comics that i was always looking for in bins you know, and I would, uh, but you know how sometimes there's like a tiny piece of trivia that gets stuck in your head and you're upset, yeah. you like, and you, you would have it removed surgically if you could. <laughs> One of them is the Thark name for John Carter. Dotar Sojat. Oh, yes. 
Mm-hmm. No charge. It's in there. It's not going anywhere. It's uh, yeah. You know, and it's now, because there's a line in the first. And you know, when you're young and you you buy a comic and you love it and you don't have the rest of the series, so you reread that one issue over and over again. <laughs> and there's a scene. There's a classic trope mm-hmm. where John Carter is thrown in an arena to fight a Thark. And it's secretly Tars Tarkas. Mm-hmm. And he lets John Carter know that he knows who he is by saying, Dotar Sojat, your time has come. And that just it's awesome. that resonated with me forever. And I still remember that dumb, you know, Dotar Sojat. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, but it's, uh, but anyway, yeah, that I, I, I loved those first three books. Like I said, I never really mm-hmm. went beyond the first. I reread, I read four recently and I was just like, I don't, I don't think I need to keep doing this. Uh, just like Tarzan, I've read like three or four of the Tarzans, and they yeah. all kind of turn into the same thing at a certain point. Absolutely, uh, as great as a great as great a writer as Burroughs is, the repetition can get to be a little. I, yeah, I think that when when you're when you have adult brain and you're looking at this kind of work and 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 probably a lot of pulp stuff in general, which I haven't dived too much into but i but i am a big robert e howard fan and an and edgar rice burroughs fan i think that a princess of mars especially is fascinating to read today because my takeaway today was oh there's actually way more world building than i remember and it's very clunky and it's very forced in there but man the world building is good the yeah. ideas the sci-fi ideas are so cool that i think that that in reading that material i feel like it's not something that i personally can can just kind of recommend and hold up and be like, Oh, you should read this book. It'll definitely hold up. But rather the ideas contained within the Mm -hmm. world itself, the characters, I would love to see another resurgence of people trying to adapt it, you know, whether it's an animated form or, 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 and in the past few years, they put out a fantastic role-playing game. And and that makes the most sense because the whole world is just all these rules and it's world building. So to put out some kind of a Dungeons and Dragons adjacent product, I'm like, that's a no brainer. That makes perfect, perfect sense. I would love for a a great video game to come along. I would love for, I would just love for new versions and new storytellers. I know we talked about um, like doing things like having John Carter be a black soldier, these kinds of projects that I'm seeing, like I would just love to see more, people's take on this in a modern lens while still trying to pull into the present that 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 planetary romance right that sure. feeling that's that's what i love and you know and and dynamite is very big on deja thoris oh, yeah. and they keep doing the, <laughs> the deja thoris barbarella comic i found very charming yeah. um yeah you know the whole the betty page thing they came to me and said we want to do a betty page series and it was literally a you know I admit it was just a commercial idea. Mm-hmm. They wanted Betty in the Red Sonia costume. They wanted Betty in the Vampirella costume. I said, the thing about Betty in the Vampirella costume is that's just Vampirella because <laughs> Vampirella is Betty Page in a monokini. <laughs> I realized that when I sat down to write, I was like, oh, yeah. Barry Ackerman showed a picture of Betty Page mm-hmm. to the person who first drew Vampirella. There you go. Uh, and they wanted Deja Thoris and it allowed me to riff on those characters. Awesome. But, you know, the idea from the publisher was, well, maybe, you know, maybe she's making movies or whatever. And I, I had introduced Yog satoff as a villain in an earlier mm-hmm. thing. I said, no, this is going to be, she jumps into a parallel universe where she's Red Sonia. Wow. She jumps into a parallel universe. And I called it Crisis on Infinite Bettys, <laughs> you know, because you can. <laughs> And uh, and Scott Chandler, God bless him, 
for the second issue of that series, he did the George Perez issue oh. one crisis on infinite earth, but everyone's Betty oh Page. my gosh, <laughs> like Superman is Betty Page and Wonder Woman is Betty Page and the Green Lantern is Betty Page. It's very, 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 very funny. Wow. Cover. But, um, and then the fourth issue dynamite didn't particularly have a fourth character for me, mm-hmm. but talking, we were talking about this before John Royal had drawn a Betty as Tinkerbell mm that I had never used on an issue. And I was like, oh, let's drag that out. Yeah. <laughs> and then literally the fourth issue of that series is Cthulhu versus Tinkerbell, which is my, one of my favorite things I've ever written in my life. That's funny. Um, That's so funny. You talk about, you know, the way we strip mine pop culture. Mm-hmm. When I started working on that and I had Tinkerbell and I had really, yeah, you know, I had all of the monsters from Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, what if real, yeah, is Neverland, mm. is Skull Island. What if this this is all the same? Wow. You know, the pirates and the and the Lost Boys kind of make an alliance because they're, you know, the islands covered in monsters. Yeah. And all this. It was a lot, it was a lot of fun to do. That's so cool. Um, and, you know, a, again, being able to write these sort of stock characters and do little things that are, you know, echoes of what we... I love it. You know, I was able to write one of my favorite moments I've ever written is Peter Pan pulling back the slide on a Lewis machine gun facing down, (laughs) facing down the great old ones and saying to die would be an awfully big adventure. (laughs) Awesome. That's that's awesome. Thank you. That's just some pulpy goodness. And you just love, you know, playing with these characters, um, you know, it's one of the great things about writing for comic books is being able to work with the stuff you loved when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and creating your own thing is it's is a is a very separate experience. Yeah. Um, but being able to sort of take a tour through all of the tropes you loved mm-hmm. and sort of show people this is why I this is what I love about this. This is what I love about Deja Thoris. This is what mm-hmm. I love about uh, Vampirella even mm-hmm. you know uh it's a that that part of it is definitely a gift it, it's got to be a, a really fun and i imagine even challenging exercise to try and recall what about these things like affected us when we were when we had kid brain you know yeah. like you just mentioned that peter pan scene and i'm like that's such a that would have blown my mind if i saw that well, as a kid that's it's the so, other thing is oh but like, so great you're 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 doing it for that for the audience that you used to be what do i love about this and what do i and it's interesting to me like dynamite's had james bond for a bunch of years now Mm -hmm. and i love james bond stuff i have not come up with a pitch yeah because partially because the prod it's been around so long Mm -hmm. that doing like a boilerplate supervillain with a boilerplate secret Mm -hmm. lair Mm-hmm. and a boilerplate plan for world domination. I'm no longer interested in that. I know. You know what I mean? Like all of the, my best James Bond idea is the one that it, the fan theory that everyone has. Yep. Uh, and I would love to, I would love to do that, but I know Eon Productions would never, ever, ever, ever <laughs> let me do that. Um, yeah. Literally the one Bond thing I tried to write opens with, for want of a better description, George Lazenby, you know, looking like a homeless guy, stopping Daniel Craig on the streets of London yeah. saying, what year did Tracy die? 
Yeah. <laughs> what year did Tracy die? And he goes, 1969. Okay, yeah. how old are you? Yeah. Wait, Wait I was minute. four when my wife died? Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, just like the exactly. whole idea of SAS commandos being brainwashed to think they're James Bond for 40 years. Uh, I think brilliant. Fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. the other scene that I loved, I, again, I, all of this stuff that's just dreams that you'll never get to write. But mm -hmm. the second scene is Judy Dench on a beach with Patrick McGowan and, and Sean Connery going, I know you two are behind what happened. Yep. I know you're trying to shake up and destroy the <laughs> 007 program and it's not going to work. <laughs> I threw the two of you in the village. I will find Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan and Lazenby, and they're yeah. going to end up here too. Yeah, if you're putting the if you're putting them up to bit. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, that's it's all the bonds having to team up. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's and I fun. came up. I I had this idea of giving them all that the double O the double O number would be followed by the year that Connery mm. is 00761 and you know 0772 mm -hmm. and oh, but. Uh, but also that their code names are, you know, the thug, the gentleman, yep. the assassin, which is Timothy mm -hmm. Dalton, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Okay. The assassin's Dalton. The thug is, is that Craig? That could be Craig or Connery. Depending Connery? On how okay. You look okay. Because Connery was kind of the blunt instrument. Uh-huh. The gentleman uh, was more. Okay. The playboy okay. was, was uh, Brosnan. Brosnan. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That was and all then, like. The model was Lazenby. Who was Lazenby? <laughs> Lazenby was the madman because the he mad man. He does one mission and it does it goes it. terribly. He does all the things you're not supposed to do. He falls in love with the girl. He marries her mm -hmm. and then she's murdered. And he he's and they literally have to drag the thug back from the village yep. for one more adventure to kill Blofeld. Love it. You That's know? great. But That's again, great. Eon Productions would never ever let me do that. Anymore. I know. <laughs> anyway, I should wrap this up. This was so great, Hector. So much fun. Hey, Thank thanks for so letting much. me talk about. John Carter, uh, a thing that I, I could not have expected I would end up loving when I was a kid. But, you know, as I got older and a little bit more interested in the DNA of the stuff that I love. Well, that's why I do know? this. Yeah, that's why I do this series partially is to sort of show people mm -hmm. the DNA, you know, mm -hmm. to tell them that Superman is just Doc Savage, you know, plus yep. John Carter, plus yep. all of that. Yep. You know, I think. Because to me, it doesn't ruin it. It's like, you know, I, I did a thing on Red Harvest, Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest, which is literally the first man with no name. Literally, you know, everyone from Very cool. Clint Eastwood to, to Shira Mafune to Pedro Pascal currently yeah. are yeah. doing variations on the man with no name. Absolutely. Uh, all from Dashiell Hammett all from a 1934 mm -hmm. brilliant crime novel, which hilariously to me has been adapted as everything but the original novel. Because <laughs> even the Walter Hill gangster version mm -hmm. with, uh, with Bruce Willis throws out too much of the plot of the novel to really be a good adaptation of the novel. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much, Hector. Uh, I'll let you know when this goes live. And Great. The fans watching at home, we'll see you on the next one. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.